Please turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 7. This morning we will be reading verses 18 through 35. Luke 7, 18 through 35. This is God's word. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you see? What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. The classic novel, Pilgrim's Progress, is an allegory about the Christian life. In the story, we follow along as the main character, a man named Christian, of course, flees from his hometown, the town called the City of Destruction, And he finds his way to the wicket gate, then to the cross, where he loses the heavy burden he'd been carrying, and he's given new clothes. And then he sets off on a long, difficult, and dangerous journey to the celestial city. At one point in the journey, after meeting a traveling companion named Hope, they become frustrated because the path gets difficult and rough. And so they find an easier path. But that path leads to great difficulty. On that path, 
they encounter a sudden storm that brings a flood and they almost drown. And then after having survived the flood, they find themselves on the grounds of giant despair, a true giant. And that giant comes and he arrests them, he takes hold of them, casts them into the dungeon at the bottom of his castle, and there they begin to suffer. That castle is called Doubting Castle. Christian and hopeful spend days without food or water in the dark and slimy dungeon. Giant despair comes down often to beat them severely. Eventually, he begins to taunt them and to entice them to commit suicide to end their suffering. And Christian almost gives up, but hopeful encourages him to persevere and reminds him of how much they had already endured, how much they had already come through. I've often wondered, as I've read that part of Pilgrim's Progress, I've often wondered if John Bunyan had John the Baptist in mind as he wrote that section. The time frame that we're looking at here in Luke chapter 7 is about one year after John the Baptist had baptized Jesus. And at that point, Jesus began his earthly ministry. John continued to preach in the wilderness, to preach repentance. Meanwhile, Jesus went off and found his disciples and began his ministry. Eventually, Herod Antipas, who ruled over that area under the Roman Empire, he divorced his wife and then married the divorced wife of his brother. And John the Baptist condemned Herod Antipas for that and Herodias, his, the wife of his brother. And as chapter 3 said, as we read several weeks ago, he also condemned him for all the other evil things that Herod had done. Herod was a very bad man. Well, Herod added to all the evil things he had done, it says in chapter 3, that he locked up John the Baptist and threw him in a dungeon in the bottom of his desert fortress near the Dead Sea. And there John suffers greatly. And he faces imminent death. He is really, literally, in his own doubting castle. From this passage, as John goes through this dark night of his soul, you get the idea that he's mystified as to what's going on. Not only is he not understanding why God is allowing him to suffer and prohibiting him from ministering, but he's also mystified by the reports that he's hearing about Jesus and his ministry and what he's doing with his disciples. Verse 18 says that John's disciples, John the Baptist still had disciples at this point, that some of his disciples were coming to him and giving him reports about what Jesus was teaching and what Jesus was doing. Well, if you go back to chapter 3 for a second, and you'll see there, as John was preparing the way for the Messiah, that was his particular calling, as he's preaching about repentance and telling people to get ready before, for the king and the kingdom of God was about to come. Remember how he characterized the coming kingdom of the Messiah, 
how he characterized who this Messiah would be and what his kingdom would be like. Let me just read to you a few of the things he said in those sermons. He says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's the Messiah that he preached. That's the work of the Messiah that he described. And so John then hears, a year later, he hears these reports coming back about what kind of ministry Jesus has among the people. He hears reports about miracles of compassion, not judgment. Like healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, healing lepers, enabling the lame to walk, casting out demons, even raising the dead. His miracles are all miracles of compassion and, and restoration, not judgment and destruction. And the reports of the teaching that John the Baptist was hearing, the kinds of things that Jesus was teaching about, as we've seen in the last few chapters. He was teaching about blessings on the poor, about humility, about even loving your enemies. You can understand. John must be sitting in this dark, cold cell, this dungeon, saying to himself, where's the axe? Where's the fire? Where's the winnowing fork? Where's the judgment? Meanwhile, the corrupt leaders, the religious leaders of the Jews are still in power, still prosperous. The oppressing Romans are still firmly in place, abusing the people, prospering in their wealth. John was mystified. Reminds me, I saw earlier this week, a few days ago, Paul Tripp uh, tweeted on his uh, Twitter account, he tweeted, God will confuse you. He will leave trails of mystery in your life, but he will never be unfaithful to you. And I think that's something that we need to accept in the Christian life is to understand that there are going to be times where God will, with intention, with good intention, according to his good plan, will allow us to go through periods of darkness, periods of confusion, of not understanding what he's doing, not being able to make sense of what he's trying to do. And in those times of confusion, especially if it entails suffering on our part, in those times of confusion, it's very easy to begin to doubt. Is there a God? Is Yahweh, the God of the scriptures, the true God? Is the Bible reliable? Is it true? Is Jesus who I thought he was? Can I really build my life on the promises that are in Scripture? Well, as we think about that and we look at how John dealt with his doubts in a very understandable time of darkness in his life, we can learn how to persevere in the face of doubt. I think the most important lesson is the thing that we notice right away. How did John respond to this time of doubting? How did he respond to the questions that he was having 
And that's the first lesson for us, is we need to go to Jesus with it. We need to talk to Jesus about our doubts. That's always the first thing that we should do. From his dungeon cell, John sends two of his disciples to Jesus with a very simple but pointed and kind of shocking question. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Shocking to hear the man who preached with such boldness and fire out in the wilderness now asking this question, are you really the Messiah or should we look for someone else? By and large, I, I really appreciate the commentary that J.C. Ryle did, has done on the Gospel according to Luke, and I found very many helpful insights that I've shared even in some of my sermons from what J.C. Ryle uh, taught about these passages. But I really had to take exception with the way he interpreted this one because, and, and he really was unusual, his take on it. He said that he believed that John wasn't really doubting, that he knew that Jesus was the Messiah, had no doubts about it at all, but he wanted his disciples to, to learn from Jesus, to begin to follow Jesus. He knew that his time was coming to an end, and so he sent them to ask this question so that they would see that Jesus was the Messiah and begin to follow him. And so he portrays this, Ryle portrays this as, as a magnanimous and, and, and uh, teaching uh, moment for John and his disciples. But I don't think at all that's what's going on. There is a tendency we have to want to look at the people in the scriptures, the people that we talk about all the time, Moses, David, Abraham, Paul, Peter, John, to look at them like they were some kind of superheroes. They're spiritual superheroes who could do all things and look up to them that way. And certainly these were great men and women and they did great things of faith, but they were also sinners like you and me, prone to the same weaknesses, dependent upon the Lord for all good things, just like we are. It's interesting to me that in Pilgrim's Progress, I was trying to remember where in the journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city, where in that progress, I was trying to remember how far along that the incident with the Doubting Castle came into the story. I thought it was pretty far along and I was able to, to look at the story and I realized that, that they had already made it way down the road on the journey when they got off the path and ended up in Doubting Castle. They had been through many trials and tribulations already and Christian in particular. He had even fought against the great dragon Apollyon and defeated him on the road before that incident with giant despair and Doubting Castle. And so I think John Bunyan, in writing the story, is trying to say that this is normal to the Christian life, that you're going to go through periods of doubt. The struggle against doubt is an occasional but lifelong reality for those of us who live by faith as sinners in this fallen world. See how Jesus responds to John's question. He's not angry. He's not frustrated. He doesn't condemn John for asking the question. He doesn't condemn him for his doubts. He says, go to John and tell him what you see and hear. You see, Jesus knew the heart of John. Jesus knew 
that John was speaking from a regenerate heart, a born-again heart, a new heart that had been given by grace by God to him, a heart that believed, a heart that trusted. He didn't have the kind of skeptical attitude that the Pharisees displayed when they encountered Jesus. The Pharisees would ask Jesus for a sign. They demanded signs from him. But their heart was not right before God. When they demanded signs, they were basically saying to Jesus, prove yourself to us. Do some great sign, then we'll believe in you. But Jesus refused to do signs for the Pharisees. He refused to do signs for skeptics. That's because signs won't change the heart of someone who is spiritually dead. Jesus once told a story about a rich man and a beggar who stood outside the gates of the rich man named Lazarus. And after the rich man died and ended up in hell and Lazarus died and went to be with the Lord and was there with Abraham in heaven, it says in the story, the way the story goes, as Jesus told it, the rich man asked Abraham to send somebody from heaven to earth to warn his family that were still alive so that they would not end up in hell where he was. And you remember how Abraham answered him? Abraham said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Signs cannot change the hearts of those who are spiritually dead. Even the greatest sign of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, cannot change the hearts of someone who is spiritually dead and unresponsive. But that's not what Jesus saw when he heard these doubts coming from John. John's question came from a trusting heart. John's heart was like that father of the demon-possessed boy who said to Jesus, when Jesus said that he must believe that he could do the healing, he could do great things, the father said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus did a great sign for that father and delivered his son. You see, that's how Jesus responds to expressions of doubt coming from those who love and trust him, who are struggling with a weakened faith, but want to believe want that faith to be strengthened, want the doubts to go away. Many of the Psalms, I believe, are given to us to learn how to express our doubts. It's amazing how often in the book of Psalms, the writer of that song is expressing in the midst of trials and difficulty and doubts, just openly, honestly, painfully expressing that God seems far away, that he seems to have his back turned, that he doesn't seem to notice. Let me give you an example, just one example of many in the book of Psalms. I'll read Psalm 13 to you and listen to how the psalmist handles a time of darkness and suffering and doubt in his life. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? 
Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He goes from the place of doubt and despair to hope and rejoicing by taking it to the Lord. When you are struggling in your faith, you're going to have a tendency to feel like the Lord is angry with you. The Lord doesn't want to hear it. That you want, you're ashamed of your doubt and you want to go hide. But you need to take it to him. Pray, cry out. Lord, I need greater faith. James promises that when we ask for faith, the Lord is pleased with that request. When we genuinely seek more faith, a strengthened faith from the Lord, he is pleased to answer that. So that's the first step when you're faced with doubt is go to Jesus to talk to him about it. The second step is to renew your mind in God's word. And that's subtly what Jesus does for John the Baptist here. In response to John's question, Jesus doesn't just point to the miracles that, that these disciples of John were actually witnessing in that very moment. He doesn't just point to the miracles. He also uses phrases that will clearly remind John of passages of Scripture in the Old Testament that he would know well. The promise is given in the book of Isaiah about the coming of the Messiah. All the Jews would have known these passages as well, but especially John the Baptist, who was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. He would know these passages from Isaiah. And Jesus purposely uses words and phrases that will remind John of those passages. For instance, Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And even more clearly paralleling what Jesus says here to, to the message to go back to John is the message from Isaiah chapter 61. Remember, the beginning of Isaiah 61 is the passage that Jesus read when he visited the town of Nazareth and he stood up in the synagogue. He read these verses from the, the beginning of Isaiah chapter 61 and he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. And this is what it says. This is the prophecy. See how it sounds so much like what Jesus tells the disciples of John to take back to John the Baptist. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now what's interesting there is that that is very much the language that Jesus uses when he says, take this message back to John. But even there in Isaiah 61, what you see is that as it talks about healing the sick, giving sight to the blind and helping the poor, it also talks about giving good news to the poor. And it, it says, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. 
even in that prophecy, you see both the mercy and compassion and the good news, the gospel, being presented by the Messiah, being brought by the Messiah, being lived by the Messiah, but you also have it speaking of a day of vengeance and judgment. Jesus will one day bring the wrath and judgment of God. He will one day come to punish forever those who stand opposed to God and to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He will come again and he will be the judge on the throne and all will stand before him and he will separate the people like the sheep from the goats. That day is coming. Everything that is sinful will be destroyed. Death itself will be destroyed. And the whole universe will be recreated in perfection into the eternal kingdom. John saw that day and prophesied of that day, and he was right. But he wasn't given the ministry that Christ came to, the, the message that Christ came to give. You see, John was an old covenant prophet. And most of the Old Testament prophets saw the coming of the Messiah as one great event where God's people would be delivered and God's enemies would be judged and destroyed. But as history revealed what those prophecies and promises meant, we see in the New Covenant that those are two comings of the Messiah. And Jesus Christ came the first time with mercy and compassion. To put it in his own words from John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But he goes on to say, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. There is a day still to come when Jesus will come to condemn those who do not bow the knee to him as their King and Lord, who do not trust in him for their forgiveness and salvation. But he came the first time by necessity to accomplish salvation for his people. You see, the lesson for us in this is that when we're plagued with doubts, we need to go to God's word. That's how Jesus ministered to John the Baptist in his dark night of the soul, is that he pointed him to the word of God. He pointed him back to the prophecies of Isaiah. He said, John, go back and read those again. You will see that I am fulfilling everything that God said would happen when the Messiah comes. He's teaching John to go to the Word of God to address the doubts that he was having, to take away the mystery. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And our minds are renewed by the Word of God. So you begin, when you have doubts, when you're struggling with doubts, your first step is to cry out to Jesus, take it to Him, Ask him to strengthen your faith and to show you truth. And then you go to the word of God, relying upon the Holy Spirit to help you to see in the word what will dissipate the doubts that you're struggling with.
because it is there. When what Jesus is doing in the world or in your life doesn't meet your expectations, it's your expectations that have to be changed. Your expectations have to be corrected so that you can see what Jesus is doing. Which leads to the last lesson. After seeing what God is doing by his word in this world, then you're able to begin to see your life and the world around you from God's perspective. As many have said, sanctification is all about learning how to think God's thoughts after him. After John's disciples leave to take their message back to John the Baptist in the dungeon, Jesus turns to the crowd and he gives a eulogy for John. Now we think of eulogies as only being at funerals for somebody who's passed away. John's not dead yet, although he soon will be. But eulogy just means good words. It's a good report, a good assessment of somebody. And that's what Jesus does here. In verses 24 and 25, he reminds the people of the ministry of John the Baptist. He says, you didn't flock, all you people, you didn't flock out there to the wilderness to hear John and to be baptized him because he was like some flimsy, some flimsy reed, he says, something that just swayed in the wind. He didn't, you didn't go out there to see somebody who was dressed in fine, fancy, expensive clothes and living in comfort. What he's saying is that John the Baptist faithfully preached the word of God. He didn't preach according to the, the shifting winds of public opinion. He didn't preach what people wanted to hear. He preached what God said. And he was faithful in presenting the truth to people. And he was one who sacrificed for that ministry. He didn't seek the comforts or rewards or approval of this world. He lived in the wilderness. He wore camel's hair. He ate locusts and honey. And now he was suffering in prison because of his proclamation of the truth. John the Baptist was a living example of what Jesus had taught back in chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, where he said, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. In those terms, John the Baptist was a great man. That's how Jesus saw him. He was faithful to his calling. He sacrificed in this world for the sake of eternal reward and approval of his Lord and Savior, Jesus gives John the highest commendation that he could possibly give at that point in history. He says he wasn't just a prophet of God. He was a faithful prophet of God. And that is the highest calling in many ways that a human being could have. But he says he was more than a prophet. And what he means by that is that he was a prophet who was prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. Malachi had said that one would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. John was the, had the exalted status of being the prophet who prepared the way for the Messiah to come, the Son of God, to 
to take upon himself human flesh and dwell in our midst. He was the greatest of prophets. He was greater in that sense than Abraham or Moses or David. No one up to that point in history was greater than John the Baptist besides Jesus himself. But, he says, now that he has come, now that Christ, the Messiah is here, the Christ is here, he is establishing the kingdom on earth. And the least person, he says, in the new covenant kingdom of Jesus Christ is greater than John, has a higher status, a more privileged status, more exalted status than John the Baptist. And what he means by that is that John lived in shadows and types. He lived in the promise of the Messiah, but not the reality and the presence of the Messiah. He lived under the forms of the old covenant. And that is, the, that is what he prophesied too. But Jesus had come. He was the great prophet. Jesus was the great high priest. Jesus was the great king. Jesus came to, to accomplish redemption. All that the sacrifices and the temple and the priesthood pointed to, Jesus came to fulfill that. He died on the cross. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He bore the wrath of God in his body on that tree. He died as an atoning sacrifice so that our sins can be forgiven. And then he is raised from the dead and he ascended to the throne in heaven. And we now live in the kingdom of God on earth. It is established on earth. It is spreading to the four corners of the earth as the gospel is preached and sinners are saved and come into loyalty to the great king. Jesus told his disciples over in chapter 10 how privileged they were. He says it in these words, beginning in chapter 10, verses 23 and 24. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I mean, just think about comparing from the early parts of the gospel according to Luke of the ministry, the sermons of John the Baptist, which were true and powerful and good. But compare what John preached to what the apostle Paul preached and Peter preached later after the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit had come in his fullness. And, the, and the, you think about the book of Romans compared to what John the Baptist preached and you realized that the least of the one who, in, who is in the new covenant kingdom of Christ is in a greater and more exalted and highly privileged place than even John the Baptist, the greatest of the old covenant. It's like comparing the valedictorian of a sixth grade graduation to a C or D student of a graduate school graduation. You can't compare the two. Crying out to Jesus with your doubts and going to his word to renew your mind in the midst of those doubts will enable you to see yourself and your life from his perspective. Think what it meant for John on that day when his earthly life was done to stand before the Lord and to have the Lord say to him, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what John needed in that dark moment is to understand that Jesus didn't look at him the way that Herod Antipas looked at him. 
Jesus didn't look at him the way that the crowds looked at him. Jesus saw him washed in the blood, saw him forgiven, saw him adopted, saw him an heir of the kingdom. He saw him as faithful in the difficult and sacrificial ministry that he did. And that's how Jesus sees you. If you are cleansed in the blood, if you are trusting in him for salvation, you are forgiven, you are robed in his righteousness, you've been adopted by his grace into his family, you are a child of God. You are an heir of the eternal, perfect kingdom of King Jesus. And you have the promise of sanctification and eventually glorification, living as a perfect child of God in a perfect kingdom forever. Crying out with your doubts and going to his word to have that awareness renewed in you is how you escape your doubting castle. It also enables you to do something else. It not only enables you to see yourself and your life as God sees you in your life, but it also enables you to see the world around you. And I think that's what gets so difficult. If you're not praying, if you're not in the word, you lose the ability to see the world around you the way that God sees it. The world has its own wisdom, which is foolishness in the eyes of the Lord. Often the doubts that we have, if you think about it, maybe if you're in a period of doubting right now in your life, often the reason that you have fallen into a period of, of doubt is because you've been listening to the world too much. You've been immersed in the things of the world too much. And you've begun to see yourself and your life and your ministry and your hopes and your dreams and your values. You started to see it from the world's perspective and you lost the Lord's perspective on your life. In verses 29 and 30, it's just a short description there of the division that happened among the people over the ministries of John the Baptist, the forerunner, and Jesus the Messiah. That there's this division. And then in verses 31 through 35, Jesus compares the people, the crowds, the mass of people who have rejected him, including especially the scribes and the Pharisees, he describes them as children. Now, Jesus would sometimes compare people to children in a positive way. He told us we should have the faith like a child. But here he's comparing these people who have rejected John the Baptist's message and who have rejected him as being childish in the negative sense. He pictures them, he gives a picture of children playing in the street, out in the marketplace. They're playing, and one group of children are over here, and they're pretending to have a party, maybe a wedding. That would be very common in that day. A wedding were a big deal. And so you'd have a bunch of children pretending to have a wedding over here. They're playing flutes and they're dancing and, and rejoicing at this big party over this pretend party. But there's always that one kid that won't dance. That one kid who says, this is stupid. I don't want to do that. I hate that. Oh, let's do something else. The childish one, the selfish one, the petulant one. And then you'd have another group, Jesus says, another group of children over here, and they're pretending to have a funeral. And so they're playing sad, sorrowful music, and they're pretending to mourn, they're pretending to cry, they're pretending to have this funeral. And that same kid that doesn't want to play with the partying kids is saying, ah, that's stupid, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a part of that, let's do something else. And so Jesus is portraying that people who don't 
listen to John and his witness to Jesus, who don't listen to Jesus and recognize his signs and recognize who he is, they're people that can't be pleased. They're like childish, selfish, childish people who can't be pleased, who aren't going to go along, just going to be contrary because that's the nature we're all born with. We want to do everything any other way but God's way. We want to worship any God but the true God. We want a moral system that's any other system except God's system of morality and truth and value. They're childish, foolish in the eyes of God. Preaching judgment, calling people to repentance, lived in the wilderness, lived in, in isolation and sacrifice. And these childish people who rejected his message said he had a demon. Jesus says, I came preaching grace and forgiveness and compassion and mercy and good news for the poor. And they called me a glutton and a drunkard and someone who in a sinful way hangs out with tax collectors, other sinners. You see, this is what spending time in God's word does. It not only enables you to see yourself as God sees you, but it enables you to see the world the way that God sees the world and it's foolishness. Childish foolishness. By spending time in the Word of God, you begin to see that what the world calls right is wrong. What the world calls rich is poor. What the world calls wise is foolish. What the world calls first is last. And so Jesus' final word to the crowds, reflecting upon the doubts of John the Baptist. His final word is this, verse 35. Wisdom is justified by all her children. What does that mean? Wisdom is truth. The word of God is wisdom. Christ is wisdom. The gospel is wisdom. It is justified, in other words, shown to be, revealed to be, vindicated to be, what it is, the truth, the whole truth the powerful truth of God by those who are its children, those who believe the word of God, those who believe the gospel, those who trust in the gospel, those who live by the word of God. That's how we know what is true. It's because of its effect on sinners like you and me. When we struggle with doubts about God's word, with doubts about who Jesus is, about what salvation is, about eternal life, when we struggle with those doubts, Satan is going to come and whisper in your ear. And he's going to say, oh, you're doubting. You, you, you're not worthy to talk to Jesus. You're not worthy to pick up the word of God. Or he might tempt you. Say, oh, wow, well, you know, yeah, you're, you're kind of walking in the darkness here. Why don't you go spend some time? I mean, as long as you're in the doghouse, why don't you go indulge yourself in the ways of the world? Go, go try out what the world is offering over here. But what John the Baptist teaches us is that we need to immediately go to Jesus with our doubts and then go to his word to have our perspective changed and brought into line with what is true about him about what is true about us, what's true about our lives, and what's true about the world around us. 
How did Christian and Hopeful get out of Doubting Castle? Do you remember the story? They spent, after many, many days of being beaten and deprived of food and water and suffering and being tempted by suicide, after many days of that, they spent one whole night in prayer. And the next morning, after spending that night in prayer, this is what Christian suddenly perks up and says. He says, What a fool I have been to lie in a stinking dungeon like this when I could have just as well walked free. I have a key in my pocket next to my heart. It's called promise that will, I'm sure, open any lock in Doubting Castle. And so he takes the key out of the pocket. He opens up the cell door. They walk up to the door of Doubting Castle. They open the door with the key to Doubting Castle. They walk to the outer gate. They unlock the gate. They walk the path. They get back on the King's Highway and go back on their way to the celestial city. Now, as far as storytelling goes, that's what you call an anticlimactic resolution. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's, that's like, if you're watching a movie and the solution to the dilemma that the main character's in is resolved that simply and easily, you say, well, that's poor storytelling. But it's scriptural truth. That whatever you need to get out of your doubt and despair has already been given to you. You have it in your heart. You have the word of God, the promise of the gospel, the promise of the abiding presence of Jesus Christ, and the promise of victory over sin and death, and the promise of eternal life in his kingdom. We just need to go talk to him and re-educate our minds and our hearts in his word so that we can hold on to that key of promise and use it wisely. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for the invitation that we see here in this passage of Scripture as well as in the book of Psalms and many other places to come to you, to express to you what we're going through, to tell you how we feel lost and forgotten, how we feel far from you, how we feel that you don't care, that you want us to bring those to you like, like hurting children. And that because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, we are your children. You love us and you will always love us. And you will bring us all the way down the path to the celestial city. You are a faithful God and we trust in your promises. Thank you for these reminders in this passage of scripture. Guide us and direct us and provide for us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.